You're listening to Atheistically Speaking. Hello and welcome to Atheistically Speaking. This is episode 182. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. All right. Well, as I referenced on Tuesday, I accidentally skipped a month of Portable Atheist. I like to cover, uh, you know, one of these a month, very minor uh, part of the show. However, I did skip a month, so I'm doing two this week. And since the Karl Marx one barely counted, uh, oh, quick note on that. I did get several messages of support <laughs> on my Karl Marx analysis, including one that went pretty deep into it. So I appreciate that from you guys. I can't believe I forgot to mention this. One of my favorite underrated comedies is uh, is Mystery Men, for anyone who's seen that. And <laughs> there's a part in the movie where there's this kind of guru guy who's training everybody up on how to be a better superhero. And he he keeps using all these sentences where he reverses the words. And at one point he says, like, if you cannot learn to master your rage, Ben Stiller says, then my rage will become my master. It's what you're going to say, right? And uh, it, that that is exactly how Karl Marx was for me. Almost every phrase was that. It was like the master of the something, blah. And then he, but it, and then he reverses the words. And like, that's, that was everything he did. So someone sent me a message reminding me of that. Not of Mystery Men. <laughs> I'm the only one in the world who would link it to Mystery Men. <laughs> unless unless somehow that was the original uh, Mystery Men writer's intent to link it to Karl Marx. I don't know. But, uh, but anyway, thanks for those messages. I have to say one of my philosophies in life is to be like the little kid in the Emperor's New Clothes. I'm not – I'll be honest. I'm not really afraid to just point out when I think everyone is making a big deal about something that – Maybe I don't get – and here's the downside. There's a very real downside that I could just be not getting something. And so when I say, hey, this Karl Marx writing, I don't get it. I can't – it's it's unreadable to me. The, the very real downside is that everyone's going to email saying, oh, wow, you are an idiot. You don't get <laughs> You don't get how brilliant it is? Here, let me point out to you. Which, uh, okay. Actually, is that even a downside? It may be a downside – for my perception, you know, people's perceptions of me. But in the end, maybe I would learn something from people uh, telling me what I'm missing. But in this case, um, I don't, I don't think again, and not to completely wash over everything Marx wrote as, as dumb or something, not at all. He has a weird kind of genius or he had a weird kind of genius, but he wrote in a way that is, I don't like it. It's hard. It's very difficult to read. And I don't know that everything is as precise as it could be. The reason I bring this up is the transition to the next reading that we're doing, that today's reading was, it's giving me the bends because we went from something that I can barely read, this Karl Marx. I didn't even, I didn't even tell you about the rest of it. Oh, someone did point out that the rest of the essay after the religion part is not even about religion at all. And, and, Marx's thing is barely about religion. It's all all about specific. I think I mentioned this. It's all about specific uh, German politics and stuff like that. So I think it's weird that Hitch said in his intro that the entire essay proves that religious differences are due to 
unresolved contradictions in the material world. I don't really know where the essay said that. Now, Hitch was a sort of genius of his own. I don't, he's probably getting that from somewhere. I didn't really see it. And, and, uh, I know one of my, one of my listeners looks like he had really studied the text because he read German. I think it was, he read the original German and he said he didn't think it, the rest of it had anything to do with religion. So interesting. Anyway, this was a complete 180 from that. This reading is by George Eliot, who, of course, is actually a woman by the name of Mary um, Mary Ann Evans. Sorry, I forgot the rest of her name. But it's a woman named Mary Ann Evans who went by George Eliot, of course, to be taken seriously. Now, she wrote in a time when women could write with their real names. It wasn't like it was, you know, forbidden or they wouldn't be published. But they usually wrote works of uh, kind of fantasy or, were, you know, they're they sort of stereotyped. And she did not want to fit into a stereotype and have her work be looked at that way. So she wrote under the name George Eliot. And I have to say, okay, so she lived from 1819 uh, to 1880. So all in all, not too terribly long ago, a little bit uh, pretty similar to Marx, actually. I think this book is pretty chronological. She lived in a very interesting time from London. And I just want to declare right now, this woman was really brilliant. She was, I can't even, this reading was such a joy. Now it was a little dense. It's, it's hard. And it, I think it's dense in a good way. It's dense in a sort of a genius way where every point is very complicated. But unlike the Marx thing where it's like, well, this is dense, but I don't, I don't really know what I'm reading. Like I can't really tell what's being said. And I don't know if that anything is being said sometimes. Every point is spelled out just right. The logic works. The the uh, the the it's it's just great, you know. I, clause by clause, I could know precisely what her argument was. Uh, or most of the time, it was a really scathing insult she was laying down. So the reading. So here's some cool background. There was this guy apparently at the time who went by the name who was named John Cumming, which is a I can't help but juvenilely laugh at the name of uh, John Cumming because he was a popular preacher at the time. He was an evangelical preacher. He was very anti-Catholic. And so what was happening is he had been publishing or somebody had been publishing his sermons or uh, or at least writings that were based on his sermons and stuff. And people were really liking it. And he had actually led a lot of people to his church. It went from, let's see, it went from about 80 to about 900 in his time because he, something about him, I don't know, he really increased the um, the popularity of his church. And like I said, it was a very specific church. It was anti-Catholic. It was, uh, well, it's the National Scottish Church uh, in Covent Garden, where it was. And his two big things were being anti-Catholic and preaching about end times. So he was writing these papers and, and people were, they were being published widely and people were reading them widely. And so George Eliot, a.k.a. Marianne Evans, uh, and by the way, I'll, of course, read Hitch's intro, too. It's just, it's pretty brief, but I wanted to, this is kind of an interesting backstory. She, at the time, was writing for a publication called the Westminster Review that went from, uh, if looking at the Westminster Review, it's really interesting. It was started by someone else we've read, or at least talked about, and that's Jeremy Bentham. So interesting, started by him in 1823, and it featured articles by James Mill, John Stuart Mill. So we've had experience with all those people. Kind of an interesting thing that this is uh, interweaving. They were around the same time, same place. 
1851, Marianne Evans, again, George Eliot, had kind of brought together some of her peers and became the assistant editor. And she wrote these papers in response. She wrote this essay we're going to read in response to this John Cumming. Uh, and and it is scathing. It is it is unreal. I, I think that when I read this essay by, should I say George Eliot? Okay, I'll just say Mary Ann, Mary Evans. I'll say Mary Evans. You know who I'm talking about. I'll stop saying AK. So when I read this essay by Mary Evans, I honestly, all I can think about is my own shortcomings. It's that kind of thing. It's like, it's like, uh, you know, I'll pay a compliment to Noah over at Scathing Atheist. He's a brilliant writer. And uh, that shows is very brilliant, of course. And he, he'll say things in a way where I'm like, man, I never would have thought to say that. Well, this is that, but uh, no offense to Noah, this is that times a few factors because she was able to just lay out these devastating arguments and, but in a funny and insulting way, um, in, in a intentionally and, and, and brilliantly insulting way to this John Cumming. And the cool thing is, so much of what she said really applies today. I, I think this was a, an incredible woman, and uh, I, I regret she makes me regret how illiterate I am. I haven't read any of her books, but I know that Martin Amos, who was a friend of Hitch's. Uh, or well, is he's I think he's still alive. Hitch obviously not. Uh, said that one of her books was the greatest novel ever written, at least in the English language, and and so very high praise. And when I read her writing, I'm not surprised. It, it's it has this element of genius to it that is it's really cool. So we're gonna go through that. Let me get to Hitch's uh, little introduction first. Another student of Hegel and Feuerbach and, and other German idealists was Mary Ann Evans, 1819-1890, who wrote imperishable novels under the nom de plume of George Eliot. She translated David Friedrich Strauss's book Das Leben Jesu with its subversive claim that the purported events of the New Testament were mythical. In defiance of Victorian morality, she set up a home with the married freethinker George Henry Lewes. George Eliot was one of the editors of the Westminster Review and in 1855 published an attack on then well-known evangelical divine. I shall be surprised if this essay does not remind you of some more recent religious performers. And uh, totally, that yeah, I'd said that earlier. It, it is strikingly applicable to this day and age and the, the uh, preachers in this day and age. So there's from the pen of Hitch the intro for today's reading. So she starts out with a really good part, a bit on how if someone, if there's someone of certain characteristics, these are not really qualities, you wouldn't call them qualities, but certain uh, characteristics like moderate intelligence, um, pretty much average moral character, glibness of speech, she says, what career should they get into? What would be the best career? And she says, that would definitely definitely be an evangelical preacher because then, and this is a really good quote, he will then find it possible to reconcile small ability with great ambition, <laughs> superficial knowledge with the prestige of erudition, and a middling morale with a high reputation for sanctity. It's so good. So <laughs> she's saying if someone of very you know mediocre accomplishments and abilities wants to really make it big in the world, why don't you be a preacher? There, you know, the bar is pretty low. And uh, she she goes on I, again. This is actually pretty long reading. I'm 
obviously not going to read the whole thing, but I wish I could. I This is one where it may be worth actually reading it <laughs> for everybody. I mean, not me. I'm not going to read it to you guys. It'd take me hours. It actually would probably take like an hour and a half to read it. It's very, very dense. Um, but it, it's one you might want to check out. There's, I, I wish I could quote the whole thing. I keep wanting to just quote <laughs> the entire thing. That would, of course, be ridiculous. Uh, so I, I kind of have to skip through some good stuff here, but that's, that's how she sets it off. She says, you know, <laughs> if someone with very modest ability wanted to make a big splash in the world, um, then this, this would be the career to go into. She then makes an equally funny point. She says, you know, mo- most days she doesn't say, you know, I should stop saying, you know, that's, <laughs> she's much more well-spoken than that. She says, essentially priests must really look forward to Sunday because during the week, everyone kind of has these working day interests and it's, it's, you know, pretty, pretty hard to compete. But on Sunday, everyone's attention, especially back then, of course, now it's a little different now, but everyone's attention is on the preacher. The preacher becomes this super interesting person that, that, that just no one is going to boo or hiss the, the preacher on, in the church on Sunday. And uh, here's some, some language that I, I would like to read. Counsel for the plaintiff expects the retort of counsel for the defendant. The honorable gentleman on one side of the house is liable to have his facts and figures shown up by his honorable friend on the opposite side. Even the scientific or literary lecturer, if he is dull or incompetent, may see the best part of his audience quietly slip out one by one. But the preacher is completely master of this situation. (laughs) No one may hiss. No one may depart. Like the writer of imaginary conversations. Oh, I love this part. He may put what imbecilities he pleases into the mouths of his antagonists and swell with triumph when he has refuted them. (laughs) He may riot in gratuitous assertions, confident that no man will contradict him. He may exercise perfect free will and logic and invent illustrative experience. He may give an evangelical edition, (laughs) perfect free will in logic. I... It just occurred to me right now what what uh, she meant by that. It took me a second. So, she, what, what a great phrase! I, I believe if I have that right, perfect free will and logic, meaning she, <laughs> this preacher doesn't have to deterministically go through logic. I mean, when you're making uh, sort of a lo- deductive argument, it's pretty deterministic. You you have one step determines the next. It's not as though you get to. But, but she's saying that priests can exercise perfect free will and logic so they just can go from one premise to the to the next with perfect free will it doesn't really matter <laughs> and i didn't even get that until just now and invent illustrative experience he may give an evangelical edition of history with the inconvenient facts omitted all this he, he may do with impunity certain that those of his hearers who are not sympathizing are not listening for the press has no band of critics who go to the round of churches and chapels and are on the watch for a slip or a defect in the preacher to make a feature in their article. The clergy are practically the most irresponsible of all talkers. For this reason, at least, it is well that they do not always allow their discourses to be merely fugitive, but are often induced to fix them in that black and white in which they are open to the criticism of any man who has the courage and patience to treat them with thorough freedom of speech and pen. Okay, sorry for the long quote. I definitely can't keep that up. Or again, like I said, this could take uh, the better part of a day. <laughs> but I wanted to read that one because I oh, I love that. I love that language. I love that those turns of phrase, you know, just uh, they can do, you know, even uh, people in the house, in a capitalized house, I'm guessing uh, parliament or something, 
they can expect to have their facts and figures challenged. Everyday people can expect to have their opinions challenged. Priests uh, have no in, – in, on Sunday, no one's going to challenge them. It never happens. They're, the full attention is on them. They can say whatever they want. It's, 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 uh, it was so well put. So after this great intro, she says, well, the, the meaning of all this, because of all these facts she's listed out and the, the argument she's made, she's going to focus on the writings. She's going to give some attention to the writings of Dr. Cumming, who is, as I said, John Cumming, the guy I told you about. And uh, because his his writings are circulating and people seem to like them and all that, she's going to take him down a peg. That's kind of the transition here, again, to summarize <laughs> very briefly. Then quickly through some of this, she talks about how he mainly just, like I said earlier, focuses on being anti-Pope, anti-Catholic, and talking about uh, the, more, the more unpleasant things of the Bible, um, gnashing of teeth and so on. Um, and and she, I'm wondering if this is sort of a tactful thing. I don't think she comes out, she, she doesn't really write this as an atheist per se, and I think that that's likely a product of the times. She writes it from a perspective of, look, the real Jesus wouldn't have been interested in his sermons, sort of. I mean, that's kind of how she presents it, which I think is smart. I think it it makes sense in that time to – there's plenty of <laughs> contradictions she can point out with this doctor coming uh, without trying to disprove all of Christianity. Uh, but it's really interesting. We can kind of see the line that she treads there. Skipping ahead a bit after she levels some more accusations about the, the just terrible quality of his writing and stuff. There, here's a cool quote I found. There is not a more pernicious fallacy afloat in common parlance than the wide distinction made between intellect and morality. Interesting. Now, that's I would be curious to know more examples of that in her time, but it's, I mean, she p- puts it as though that's a very common thing. I think that's true today as well. People seem to think you can either be like a smart – oftentimes in movies, there will be some scientist character or something, you know, where it's like that you can either be this brilliant number cruncher of a person or you can have a heart and actually make good moral decisions. We're often given this false dichotomy in, in uh, media and in art, uh, well, loosely called art in movies, you know, that sort of thing. And I wonder if that's what she's referring to, that that sort of attitude, that same – uh, that same attitude that might have existed back then. Oh, here's some great language here. He is in as much the same intellectual condition as that of Professor Padua, who, in order to disprove Galileo's discovery of Jupiter's satellites, urged that as there were only seven metals, there could not be more than seven planets, a mental condition scarcely compatible with candor. And we may well suppose that if the professor had held the belief in seven planets and no more to be a necessary condition of salvation, his mental condition would have been so dazed that even if he had consented to look through Galileo's telescope, his eyes would have reported in accordance with his inward alarms rather than with the external fact. This is where it gets really good, I think. So long as a belief in propositions is regarded as indispensable to salvation— the pursuit of truth as such is not possible any more than it is possible for a man who is swimming for his life to make meteorological observations on the storm which threatens to overwhelm him. Listen to that quote. Isn't that so good? It's, it's, it's so perfect. So there, it, it, the image is great. The, the analogy is someone who's swimming away, just, just in case, to go over it again, someone who's swimming from a storm for their lives uh, they, they're not reliable to make meteorological 
observations on the storm. And the analogy, of course, is that people are invested in their faith to that same degree. They're faithing for their lives. <laughs> they're believing in faith. Uh, they think their their spirit, their soul is at stake. They're not going to be reliable to, to make truth observations that might go counter to their beliefs. Really good image there, I think. Now, in this next part, she goes on to talk about the sort of straw manning that Dr. Cumming does, and this is very common with certain kinds of religious people, obviously not everyone, but the they talk about atheists in a way, it, it's like they can't process that atheists actually don't believe in God. They still talk about it. The, uh, the simple example would be like, well, you're just rejecting God. Hey, every, all of you listening to me right now, all you atheists, you, you're just rejecting God. Look, why why are you rejecting God? <laughs> and it's just like, no, that's not what's happening. So she she uses some really clever language to describe that. And then she says, this this is so funny. <laughs> so here's here's what this guy coming has, has said that is the creed of the infidel. So this is his version, and she says, We are favored with the following <laughs> sarcastically. Creed of the infidel. This is his version of what the infidel thinks, the infidel being you or I. I believe that there is no God, but that matter is God, and God is matter, and that it is no matter whether there is any God or not. I believe also that the world was not made. This is exactly what, what, how you and I think, isn't it? He nailed us. But that the world made itself, or that it had no beginning, and that it will last forever. I believe that man is a beast, that the soul is the body, and the body is the soul, and that after death there is neither body nor soul. I believe that there is no religion, that natural religion is the only religion, and all religion unnatural. I believe not in Moses. I believe in the first philosophers. I believe not in the evangelists. I believe in Chubb, Collins, Tullin, Tyndall, and Hobbes. I believe in Lord Bolingbroke. I believe not in St. Paul. I believe not in Revelation. I believe in tradition. I believe in the Talmud. I believe in the Koran. I believe not in the Bible. I believe in Socrates. I believe in Confucius. I believe in Muhammad. But I believe not in Christ. And lastly, I believe in all unbelief. <laughs> so here's what she has to say. This is so good. Here's what she has to say about his version. Again, this is this doctor coming. This is his version of what we think, you and I, atheists, think. She says, The intellectual and moral monster whose creed is this complex web of contradictions <laughs> is moreover, according to Dr. Cumming, a being who unites much simplicity and imbecility with his satanic hardihood, much tenderness of conscience with his obdurate vice. Hear the proof, quote-unquote. Well, now I have to read this. Sorry. Again, I'm so, I wish I could read this whole thing. It's so good, but I, I'm going to read this now that I let into it. I once met with an acute and enlightened infidel with, oh, this is one, this is great. This is one of those fake stories that priests use, <laughs> that preachers use to, uh, and that she referenced as like, you know, they, they're allowed to make up any story they want and no one's going to hold them to it. I once met with an acute and enlightened infidel with whom I reasoned day after day and for hours together. I submitted to him the internal, the external, the experimental evidences, but he made, but made no impression on his scorn and unbelief. So as Cumming tells it, he's met this atheist. They, they're called infidels back in the day, but I'll say atheist by today's uh, parlance, in the parlance of our times. And, uh, so, as Cumming tells it, he's presented this atheist with all the proof. Countless proof. There's historical proof. There's scientific proof. Whatever it is. 
At length I entertained a suspicion that there was something morally rather than intellectually wrong, and that the bias was not in the intellect, but in the heart. And one day, therefore, I said to him, I must now state my conviction, and you may call me uncharitable, but duty compels me. You are living in some known and gross sin. The man's countenance became pale. He bowed and left me. <laughs> oh, man. I, I've got to, I may end up just not being able to go through the rest of it, but I, I have to read this because this was my favorite part. <laughs> she says, here we have the remarkable psycho psychological phenomenon of an acute, quote unquote, acute and enlightened man who deliberately proposing to indulge in a favorite sin and regarding the gospel with scorn and unbelief is nevertheless so much more scrupulous than the majority of Christians, that he cannot embrace sin and the gospel simultaneously. <laughs> so I want to—I might read more, but I want to stop to make sure everybody understood that. So she's saying, like, here's someone who, why can't this guy? So the story uh, again, just briefly to summarize, is that there's this atheist who just won't accept God, and so the doctor coming is convinced, and he confronts him. He said, "You know what? You're living in—you must be living in, in sin," and the guy is so. It's sort of like one of those terrible religious movies that uh, Noah and Heath and uh, Eli make fun of in their, their delightful podcast, making fun of Christian movies. It's sort of like one of those movies. The atheist has just got pale, stricken by this argument, runs out of the room. <laughs> so she says, who is this fake character who doesn't do what every Christian does and just live in sin and not care? <laughs> Embrace sin and the gospel simultaneously is what she says. Who is this character, this rare character that actually cares so much that he doesn't just do that? Who is so alarmed? I'm going to continue reading for a little bit. Who is so alarmed at the gospel in which he does not believe that he cannot be easy without trying to crush it? Whose acuteness and enlightenment suggest to him as a means of crushing the gospel to argue from day to day with Dr. Cumming and who is withal so naive that he is taken by surprise when Dr. Cumming, failing an argument, resorts to accusation and so tender and conscious, uh, conscience that at the mention of his sin turns pale and leaves the spot. If there be any human mind in existence capable of holding Dr. Cumming's creed of the infidel, of at the same time believing in tradition and believing in all unbelief, it must be the mind of the infidel just described, for whose existence we have Dr. Cummings' ex officio word as a theologian. And to theologians we may apply what Sancho Panza says of the bachelors of Salamanca, that they never tell lies except when it suits their purpose. <laughs> so, wow, I can't believe we're already at this time. I, oh man, okay, I'll try to summarize through some of the rest of it, but I, I couldn't resist because these quotes are so good. I mean, this, this reading, I was, I, it was, very enjoyable to read. I think you all should go this one. If you have the book, definitely don't just rely on my summary because we haven't even gotten through. This is not even the better. This is like, this is not even a quarter of the reading so far. It's, it's very long and dense and thus hard to do it justice without just quoting the entire thing because it's, it's funny, these arguments and these little insults, if I just summarize and say, well, here she talks about how, uh, you know, Dr. Cumming makes up a fake example. That, I mean, you know, I, I can summarize it. Dr. Cumming is making up a straw man. It's not real. But 
boy, are you missing out on a lot if if you just hear my summary of that point. So I suppose I'll have to sacrifice covering a lot of this for just covering the the great highlights because this is a quote. Uh, th- this this reading is just full of great quotes that I would really not want to just summarize in my much, much less interesting way. Uh, there's another example here where she points out that he uses this like dramatic form in his writing. And then he, he Dr. Cumming confuses partway through, <laughs> he confuses like who's talking and kind of, she says, we don't even know, did, did the character actually say this or did he just think this? So uh, it's really, it really does remind me it, it's, it, it sort of is the equivalent back then of of an atheist podcast of some kind, of a, just a really good – because it is all pretty much just insults. It's not – I wouldn't call this – I think it's absolutely brilliant. But I wouldn't call it like scholarly writing per se. It's not like a – this isn't a philosophy paper. This isn't, oh, here I am laying out several good arguments for why this person's wrong. This is just a good old-fashioned ass-kicking is what it is. It really – but in the most brilliant way, which is why I, I think it's it's almost like a like a incredibly good podcast. If someone did this nowadays about a, a, a preacher and just ripped him a new one like this person is, it is sort of like what Noah and Heath or, or uh, Cognitive Dissonance are doing. It's sort of like that. It just is – uh, but but I have to say again, no offense to those fine folks. I have to say, quite a bit, quite a few levels of magnitude more brilliant. And not to say they aren't brilliant, but it is it, really you should read. I, I this is I want to say this may be the my favorite reading of this book so far, and the one that I actually recommend you should just read. This is Evangelical Teaching by George Eliot. Um, I, I think I forgot to say the title. Sorry about that. But it is a – now I've noticed that the version that was actually published is a little bit longer. So that's part of what Hitch did with this uh, you know, Portable Atheist is he edited a little bit. So if you find it online, it's going to be a little different than what I've read to you because I, I looked at an online version too just to check it out. And so if you want to read it and you don't have the book, you can find it online. But it has a bit – probably a bit more fat. Maybe Hitch – trimmed the fat a little bit, made it a little better. Maybe that's one reason why it's so good. All right. Well, I definitely need to summarize and stretch out a bit to cover most of this because I I really want to do you guys the favor of not stretching Portable Atheist into three straight episodes. There's no way I'm doing that. I very, very easily could make this several episodes, um, but I'm not going to. So to, to do terrible injustice to Anne's words here, I will say that she next talks about how coming claims that science is perfectly in accordance with the Bible, like the Bible is never in every iota of its scientific claims that has been proven correct by uh, by modern science. So that's pretty funny, of course, because it's not even close to true. Um, and then, so, but I have to, I'm going to skip over stuff. So then I think uh, the next interesting point I'll talk about, and I'll just summarize this here. And uh, we'll call it a day. She talks about how Dr. Cumming, and this is a, this is something I've certainly heard religious people talk about. He says that all, basically all human thoughts are evil. <laughs> like most of our thoughts, everything we do, it's, they're just not good because, and you know why? It's because they're not in service to God. Everything we think, everything we do, everything, every little thought we have apparently, according to this lunatic, um, is that it should be 
making God, it should be in praise of God, making God um, our priority in everything, uh, everything that we do. And she talks about how just really backwards this is. And it's cool because she references this person. It's kind of interesting when you're reading these old texts, pretty old, not, not as old, obviously 150 years or so is not too terribly old. Um, but they, she makes kind of a, what, what I would call a pop culture reference at the time, which is really interesting. It's it's so fascinating because it's the sort of thing you'd expect to hear nowadays with some uh, like uh, like in a Hitchens debate when he would bring up well this is sort of the opposite point but Hitch would bring up that awful guy in Germany who uh, that father who like imprisoned his daughter and was doing horrible things to her and stuff like that he would bring that up as a can you believe this I mean can you believe that God would allow this well similar to that and it's really fascinating to see the sort of pop culture reference that would be made back in this time she says. Okay, so everything is for the glory of God, right? We, we shouldn't do – that's why everything should be done. She says, doesn't this really nullify charity, you know, good work done for merely good human reasons like being kind and and all that? I mean that does not really just cheapen that. Um, and she says, what about the the deed of Grace Darling? And I was like, who the heck is this? So I looked her up. It's apparently this story at the time – of someone of this this girl this I guess young lady you would say someone in, I think she was in, in maybe in her twenties who lived and worked with her father in a lighthouse and saw that there was a shipwreck and like made an effort to help rescue everybody it, it wasn't like the most amazing hero story or anything but she apparently gathered some fame for this and um, famous enough to where this is something that. Mary Evans. Oh, I think I called her Anne earlier. Sorry about that. It's Mary Ann Evans. I, I remembered Anne instead of Mary. But that Mary Evans, popular enough that Mary references this story as like, look, would this person have done this if it just was the glory of God? How about rescuing these people in this in this uh, boat accident? <laughs> this shipwreck would be a better word for it. Uh, how about rescuing them for compassion or the chance at helping others, you know, I guess she risked her life to a certain extent. So I thought that was pretty cool that it was like this little pop culture reference. And and this, by the way, this, um, uh, what was her name again? Grace Darling, who, who rescued these people or helped rescue these people. She received all kinds of m- money and like marriage proposals. She was sort of a, a minor celebrity for it for some reason before social media. Very odd. And, uh, but then, sadly, she she died of tuberculosis at a pretty young age. So it was just an interesting little sub story to read, and something that's funny to see in a in a periodical at the time. Mary bring up as an example of like, why would you want everything to be done for the glory of God? Wouldn't you want things to be done in order to you know help people out of good motivations, that sort of thing? So she sort of ends by taking that tact that I mentioned before, where she's she's trying. She's not talking as an atheist. She's not writing as an atheist. She's saying, look, I think there are good Christians who, after reading this, might be plenty opposed to this doctrine that he is espousing, uh, despite the fact that they're both Christians. Like, I think she thinks, um, or she's, you know, writing that she thinks even religious people should be sort of disgusted by this guy um, because of this doctrine that he's teaching that is just not moral. It, it goes against Jesus's teachings. And she's taking the line at the end saying, 
uh, I don't you know bear this person any ill will. I don't think Doctor Cumming is evil. I just you know I think he has a uh, just a a bad misconception of what religion should be, and he's he's not very well. She summarizes everything she said, but she does try to make it a little tactful, like. We don't have any other reason to believe he's malicious, but here's this doctrine he's teaching and we think it's wrong. She says we a lot. I don't know if she means the royal we. She probably does or if she was, you know, if this was published with another person. It doesn't say it was, but uh, I'll go ahead and assume it was the royal we. So I, like I said, I had to skip over a lot and uh, summarize pretty poorly a lot. (laughs) Poorly in respect of her brilliant language. I mean, compared to the way she was able to make her points, uh, any summary pales in comparison. So once again, I highly recommend this one. This was very enjoyable to read. All right. Well, I'll, I think I'm going to call it there. Um, like I said, I could quote this forever, but I'm not going to. So no more, uh, don't worry, no more Portable Atheist for a month. I'll try to stay on schedule with that. Got some exciting stuff in the coming months as well. I'm thinking about a bit of a format change, and I promise you it'll be for the better. I may roll it out sooner. I was going to wait till episode 200, and then I realized it's actually quite a bit of time uh, still to go until 200. I thought it was, I, I misremembered and thought I was on 192, but it was 182, so eh. I think I may roll it out sooner than that. And it'll just be, I promise you, it'll be for the better. Um, I know you guys know I often fret about decisions like this, like, oh, or I, I can get unsure of myself. Are people going to like something I do or if I change something? Um, I've decided I need to just go with my instincts because I think that's what's brought me thus far. And I think I'm going to do something that will make it a little more regular. You'll know what to expect more on a day-to-day basis from the show. And I think it'll be, I think it'll be good. I think it'll be a good thing. So that's on the horizon. I'll let you know when I actually do that. You'll know. Uh, and I also want to say thank you so much to all my supporters. I had two new ones, Alexandra and Senator Love Your Suit on Patreon. Again, if you're going to patronize me, feel free to use whatever weird name you want. <laughs> I don't know if that's a reference to anything I know. Senator Love Your Suit. Is that a, I, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of, I don't think that's an inside joke. For me, anyway, so it must maybe it's a reference to something I don't know. But in any case, thank you so much for the support. Uh, that's, of course, at patreon.com slash atheist. And I'm going to thank my all-time greats, Zimu Zinu, Adrian Borschoff, Michael, Jonathan Moyer, Jay Aldenwalt, Bangs Naughty Bits, Peter Skelton, Brian Gearford, Dale, Matt Garrett, and Samantha with the honorable mention. Thank you, supporters. Thank you so much. And as always, you can hit me up anytime on Patreon, and uh, I like the messages I get from you guys, and I like to chat with you, so thank you. And and lots of good comments on the last few episodes. Maybe I can... Actually, let me, let me talk about a comment real quick. Here is a quick and dirty one. Is atheism at all culpable for atheist shooters? No, it can't be. Atheism has no directives at all. If we say no, are we being hypocritical when we blame Islam for terrorism? No. Islam has many directives, and that was by Kryphos on the website. Um, so that was obviously in response to the episode I did a week back or so about the Second Amendment and blaming atheism for atheist killers. I think that's a little too easy. I worry that that's a little too easy. Now, I agree you can't blame atheism as a concept. You can't blame the 
you know, uh, what would you call it? I don't want to call it the philosophy. You can't blame, it's weird to call it a belief system, but you can't blame the rejection of theistic claims as having directives and as being culpable. I agree. But it could be possible. I could imagine a set of circumstances where you could blame atheists as a group, sort of like how uh, Muslims, if there's a group of Muslims that completely renounces everything in the Quran or every, anything that could lead to violence, you would have to say, well, that when someone you know commits violence and cites certain scriptures and they say, we don't believe that's that writing, we don't listen to that. I would say they aren't really to blame um, as a group because they've renounced that. But if, say, there were uh, there was an atheist group where rhetoric had specifically in that group started getting violent and, and they did start to add on that bit of, well, we need to do something violent about the fact that all these people are wrong, you could blame that group of atheists. You could start to – and again, it wouldn't be blaming atheism. wouldn't be blaming all of atheism. But I could at least see blaming a group of atheists and being worried that we don't want to ever create that set of circumstances where atheists – but but I, I don't think we are. I, just, I want to be clear. I, I don't think we are. And I do think that while you can never blame atheism as a concept for this violence, you can blame Christianity or Islam in some circumstances for some violence because it does entail, as he's saying, as Kryphos or she – uh, is saying it does entail certain directives. And I, I do agree for the most part with that. I just wanted to add the caveat that I do think if circumstances went a certain way, not that they are now, uh, if popular atheism as a whole did start to exhibit certain uh, tendencies and start to exhibit certain violent rhetoric, then we could blame them. Just, just in the same way that other groups that have been violent have been atheists, not that it's the atheism that creates it. So just, just minor clarification there. But I do think that's a pretty good, quick way of summing it up. So thank you, Kryphos, on that. I do think it's important that we're not adding, we can't add the part where, and therefore we should kill all these people. That's the part we can't add, and that's the part that you're culpable if you do add. So quick comment there, and there are lots of them. Thank you guys so much. Mm. There was also a very positive result in the Canadian election that I had Krakus on to talk about. So maybe I'll have to have him back for a quick recap on like, okay, what happened and, and you know, what are going to be the good effects of this election? Because he was talking pretty direly about it. And uh, I think, I don't know, I didn't remember him making any prediction on what would happen, but it's good news that the Liberal Party won. It seems like good news anyway, for from my perspective. Maybe not everyone agrees with me on that, but so that'll be cool to talk to him. Okay, well, that's enough of me for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. I love you guys so much, and uh, I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.